0: Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at Banyan.com for live events, books, and more. This is Far Nasrali, and I'm thrilled to be here with Johan Hari, who is a prolific British writer and award-winning journalist who's written for the world's leading newspapers. He is here to talk about one of the most pressing issues facing the world's major cities, and that is drugs, addiction, and the war on drugs. And in particular, his book, a New York Times bestseller, Chasing the Screen. Welcome.
1: Hi, Farah. It's great to be with you. Thank you.
0: So I I wanted to start off, Johan, by asking you what were your personal motives in writing this book?
1: Yeah, when, when I started writing the book, I was trying to think about a lot of things that had happened one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to and I didn't understand why then because I was just a little boy but as I got older I um, realized we had addiction in my family and I guess it was about six years ago when I started writing the book I was one of my relatives was in a very bad way and I was in a relationship with someone who was also having real, um, really quite serious addiction problems. And I realized we were coming up to 100 years since drugs were first banned in the US, Britain and Canada. And we then kind of imposed it on the rest of the world. And, you know, to be honest, when I started writing the book, I thought, oh, this will be really easy, right? Writing about addiction and the war on drugs. I've been through it. And I just wrote out a list of questions to myself, which were like, why did we go to war against people with addiction problems 100 years ago, drug users and people with addiction problems? Why do we carry on when it doesn't seem to be working? What really causes drug addiction? And, and, and is there anywhere that's kind of found better ways of doing this? And the thing that surprised me is when I sat down to write, I realized I didn't know the answer to any of these things. And I couldn't really find the answer in what I was reading, which is why I went on this big, long journey, ended up going over 30,000 miles and really sitting with a a huge range of people whose lives have been changed, Um, from a crack dealer in Brooklyn to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel to a a homeless street user in in Vancouver who led to this extraordinary change to to the only country that's decriminalized all drugs with incredible results, Portugal. And I guess the main thing I realized is that almost everything that I thought I knew about this subject was, was wrong, really. Drugs aren't what we think they are. Addiction isn't what we think it is. Uh, the war on drugs isn't what we think it is. The alternatives to the war on drugs aren't what we think they are. So it's a, you know, it's, it, it, it was kind of exciting and surprising to realize how much of what we generally think about this stuff is wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's so much that we can go from your answer in terms of, <laughs> you know, um, what do we have wrong about the war on drugs?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's there's just so much. I mean, I think the, the, there's there's two kinds of catastrophic harm. That, and there's lots of forms of harm, but there's two that the, the two worst. So one is the one very close to my heart, which is what we do to people with addiction problems. And I guess one of the ways that became clear to me was to realise that actually I think we've misunderstood what addiction is in a quite basic way, and that helps to explain why we're dealing with it so badly. So if you let's take one example, which obviously is obviously very um, vivid at the moment. If you'd asked me six years ago, what causes heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were stupid. And I would have said, well, obviously heroin causes heroin addiction. We've, we've been we've been told this story for 100 years that's become totally part of our common sense. We think if we kidnapped, you know, the next 20 people to walk past you now, and we injected them all with heroin every day for a month, um, at the end of that month, they would all be heroin addicts. Because for a simple reason, that there are chemical hooks in the heroin that their bodies would start to kind of desperately physically need. They would have this incredible physical hunger for the drug, and that's what addiction is. The first thing that led to me the fact that there's something not right about that story is when it was explained to me, in Britain, I'm in Britain at the moment, I'm here half the year, if I, if I stepped out into the road now and I got hit by a truck and I broke my hip, I would be taken to hospital and I'd be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Dermorphine is heroin. It's the medical name for heroin. It's much more powerful than any heroin I could buy on the street, much more potent, uh, because it's not adulterated. It's it's medically pure. Um, People are given this drug for quite long periods of time in British hospitals. If anyone listening to this has a British grandmother and she's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother has taken quite a lot of heroin. If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused by the chemical hooks in the drug, what should be happening to all these people in hospitals all over uh britain the significant numbers of them should be becoming addicted this has been studied very carefully it, it virtually never happens and when i, I learned that it seems so weird i frankly didn't believe it but i kept looking at the scientific evidence it's very clear and i only really began to understand it when i came to vancouver and i interviewed an incredible um incredible man called bruce alexander who's a professor of psychology who who explain to me this this theory of addiction that we have that it's caused by chemical hooks comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century they're really simple experiments your listeners could try them at home if they feel a bit sadistic today you just take a rat you put it in a cage and give it two water bottles one is just water the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine if um uh and, and of course the rats try them and, and what almost always happens is the rat will compulsively use the drugged water and then die within, within a short period. So there you go, right? That's our story. The drug takes them over, they kill themselves. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, come on a minute. These rats are alone in an empty cage. They've got nothing to do except use the drug. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of coloured balls, everything rats like. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They obviously try them, try it. They don't use it very much. None of them use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use of overdose when their lives are terrible to no compulsive use and overdose when their lives are good. Now, there's lots of human examples, but I think that, that I can talk about of this principle. But one of the things this tells us is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection.
0: And I guess that's where we've got it all wrong Is is all of our policies are not understanding that what's needed to address addiction is human connection.
1: Yeah, you put that so well. I mean... I went out, this is an extreme example, I don't know, like it's typical, but for example, in Arizona, I went out with a group of women who were made to go out on a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying I was a drug addict while members of the public mock them and jeer at them. Once you understand that the reason why people become addicted is because they're in really deep pain and they're trying not to be present with their pain you can see why approaches like that are so crazy because they're based on the idea that what we need to do people with addiction problems is inflict more pain on them and that will make them stop. You know, in that prison, it's a prison called Estrella Prison in in Arizona. It was at the time run by Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who's just been pardoned by President Trump after his crimes. Um, In that prison when I was there, and it was so vicious and cruel to people with addiction problems, the women were really terrified of a place that they called The Hole, which is a solitary confinement block. Uh, And and I asked the guards to show me the hole and I was sure they wouldn't because I've been in plenty of prisons as a journalist before and they don't want to show you things like that. But they were very happy to show me because, of course, it's a pantomime of cruelty. They want you to see what they're doing. And I went and there was a woman in this hole. It It was an actual hole. It's a concrete, tiny concrete cell. They've got nothing except a toilet, no TV, nothing. And they're put there for a month to punish them. I looked at this hole and I suddenly thought, this is the closest you could get to an actual physical reenactment of the cages that guaranteed addiction in rats and this is what we're doing to these women thinking it will make them stop but that's an extreme example that you see throughout the culture across the western world although there's been some countries that have gone beyond this with incredible results um this it's still an approach based on punishment and stigma and, and shame which and we, and we see the predictable results sometimes people say oh it doesn't work the answer is much worse than that the truth is much worse than that it's not that it doesn't work, it makes the problem worse. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you've seen the worst of it, obviously, um, but you've mm. also seen the best of it. And you mentioned visiting Portugal. You've also been here to Vancouver. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Vancouver. But tell us about what you saw in Portugal and what they're doing differently.
1: Yeah, Portugal and Switzerland, uh, to me, were some of the most... Inspiring places, although I actually had I found Vancouver incredibly inspiring as well, which may sound surprising to some people, but if, I'm happy to explain why. But the so in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world. Um, one percent of the population was addicted to heroin, which is remarkable. And every year, um, they you know tried the American way more, they imprisoned more people, they arrested more people, they shamed more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they basically said, look, we can't go on like this. having I mean, ever more people addicted to heroin. What are we going to do? And they decided to do something extremely radical, something no one had done for more than 70 years. They said, should we like ask some scientists to look at the facts? So they set up this, <laughs> scientific, pa- they set up this scientific panel led by an incredible man I got to know called Dr. Fauci Lau. And... Uh, They basically said, look, you go away, figure out what would solve this. Look at all the best evidence and come back. And we've agreed in advance, we'll do whatever you recommend. So it was just taking it out of politics. Um, And so um, they went away. They looked at all the evidence, including Rat Park. And they came back and they said decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack. Absolutely the lot. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on screwing people up on punishing them and shaming them and spend all that money instead on turning their lives around. And what's interesting is it wasn't really uh, what we think of as drug treatment in North America. So they do some residential rehab uh, and they do some psychological support and they both have value. The biggest thing they did was a huge program of meaning and job creation. So say you used to be a mechanic, they'll go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. And they set up a huge program of micro loans, so people with addiction problems could set up and run small businesses where they were their own boss about things they cared about. And by the time I went to Portugal, which was uh, 13 years after this experiment had begun, the results were in. Injecting drug use was down by 50%. Overdose deaths were massively down. HIV deaths were massively down. You know, Portugal has five main political parties. None of them want to go back. One of the ways you know it works so well is I went and interviewed the man who led the decriminalisation campaign at the time, a man called Dr. Juan Figueroa, who was the top drug cop in Portugal. And he said what a lot of your listeners might perfectly, understandably be thinking, which is surely if you decriminalise all drugs, you'll have a massive increase in, in drug use and drug-related problems you'll have. it will just be a disaster. And he said to me when I went to see him in, it would have been 2012, said, Everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talks about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years arresting and shaming people when he could have been turning their lives around. And to me, that just tells you, there's nowhere, I went to pretty much every society that's gone beyond the war on drugs. Uruguay, Portugal, Switzerland, some parts of Britain, um, lots of other places. And Nowhere that has gone beyond the, Spain, nowhere that has gone beyond the drug war regrets it. You know, it's not this a magic bullet, it's not that everything's perfect, it's not, they still have problems, but there is a really significant improvement.
0: So tell me about your experience in Vancouver.
1: Uh, you know, it was one of the most emotionally powerful experiences of the whole long journey, partly because I met Bruce Alexander, who did the experiment we've been talking about, partly because I got to spend, spend a fair bit of time with Gabor Mate, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know, wonderful doctor who worked a long time on the downtown east side. Mm-hmm. But for me, the, the the story of the role of drug user activism in changing drug policies in, in Vancouver, I got to know someone called Bud Osborne, who I think a lot of your listeners will know. He was a in the year two thousand he was a homeless street addict in, in Vancouver and he was watching his in the downtown east side and he was kind of watching his friends die all around him. Um, there was a big police crackdown at that time. And what would happen is a lot of people would kind of shoot up behind dumpsters or, you know, they would hide to shoot up. But of course, if you're hiding and you start to overdose, nobody sees you. And then you you, you just, you're found dead. And Bud thought, I can't just watch all my friends die. But he also thought, as he would have put it at the time, I'm a homeless junkie. What am I going to do? And he had this very simple idea. He approached a load of the street users, his fellow street users. And he said, When we're not using, which is most of the time even for quite hardcore addicts, why don't we just go and check in the places we know we hide, like behind the dumpsters? And if we see someone overdosing, we'll call an ambulance, right? Not any officials, no nurses or anything. We'll just do it. And people were very skeptical, but they liked Bud, so they, you know, decided to do it. And... um, and over the next few months, the death toll on the downtown east side fell a fair bit, which was in itself a good thing because people who would have died were living. But it also meant that the addicts started to think oh, maybe we're not the kind of pieces of rubbish, garbage that people have been saying we are. Maybe we can do something. And they formed this group called VANDU, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. And Bud and some of the others had learned that in Frankfurt, in Germany, um, they had opened safe injecting rooms, which were places where people with addiction problems could go and be monitored by doctors and nurses while they used their drugs. And that had really enormously reduced the death toll. And Bud said, well, Bud and his friend said, well, we've got to have that here. And he decided to persuade the mayor of Vancouver at the time, Philip Owen, who again, a lot of your listeners will know, you know, who'd run for office saying all the local uh, drug dealers should be taken and detained at the local military base in, is it called Chilliwack? I forget how you say it. -hmm. uh, and, And never let out. Right. That was that was his drug policy. And what happened is they they engaged in this extraordinary range of activism. They you know, filled Oppenheimer Park with uh, I think it was a thousand crosses for everyone who died on the downtown east side of drug related problems. They they um, they started following Philip Owen at all his public events with a coffin. And the coffin said, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injecting room? They kept challenging him at meetings. And Philip Owen, to his absolute and eternal credit, after a few years of this kind of said, well, who are these people? And just went and sat with them and got to know them. And it blew his mind. And he in fact, opened the first safe injecting room in, as you know, in in insight in on the downtown East side and his political career. is one of the reasons why his political career ended because his part, his right wing party was so horrified by this. Um, But, you know, they opened the safe injecting room, had an extraordinary, the average life expectancy on the downtown East side improved by 10 years Uh, in the wake of the opening of Insight. Um, And when I went to see Philip Owen, he told me it was one of the proudest things he'd ever done. And he would sacrificed his entire political career all over again. And when, and when Bud Osborne died, it must be three years ago, two or three years ago now, you know, they sealed off the streets of the downtown East side where he had lived as a homeless person. And they had this incredible memorial service for him. And I found it incredibly moving, Bud's story, and getting to know, I'm really glad I got to know him before he died. Because to me, it's, a, well, it's an incredible story about many things, but it's about how powerful we are. It's hard to think of a more powerless person in our culture than a homeless street user, right? Mm-hmm. And Bud didn't sit there feeling sorry for himself, he didn't wait for somebody else to sort it out. He started where he stood, and he appealed to the decency of other people, including the decency of unlikely people like Philip Owen, who was, you know, not uh, did, did not seem like a likely candidate. And and no, it's not to say there aren't still huge challenges on the downtown east side, of course there are, which is partly because the the uh, these these I'm very strongly in favour of um, insight injecting rooms and the other problems and the other um, solutions to these problems, but what they they're very important they save a lot of people's lives but they don't deal with the deep underlying problem which is the deep well of pain in our culture um that is that that people are trying to anesthetize with these with these um with 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 very powerful powerful drugs it's not a coincidence that so many of the people with addiction problems um on the downtown east side of first nations people who are survivors of the horrendous abuse that's been very well documented for example um they're not the only people but the the, you know make up a really disproportionate amount of the people there um that's just one example of that principle of the underlying pain so the underlying pain persists so you know these reforms which have helped have not dealt with the core of the the problem which is not to say they're not hugely valuable and and what bud did saves a lot of people's lives and and all the Good and decent people in vancouver who listened and opened their hearts to the people with addiction problems did that as well so i think you know sometimes i think vancouver talks with shame about the downtowning side i think people in vancouver should be incredibly proud of the downtown east side i think it's a place that has a lot to teach the rest of the world and it's been the site of i think the most moving example of solidarity i've ever seen
0: that's really a fresh perspective to hear And what strikes me about listening to you talk about Vancouver and also the previous example of Portugal is that it's not just about decriminalization or harm reduction. It's about programs that introduce purpose and meaning into people's lives.
1: Totally. I've got a new book coming out in January, which is called uh, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, which is all about this Deep disconnection in our culture and how we can deal with it. But just staying with the drugs subject, if you think about um, again a very moving example, I saw in, in Switzerland. Uh, my dad's a Swiss citizen, which is why I have this strange name, despite having a British voice. And um, it's, so I spent a lot of time in Switzerland. And, and um, the, what they did in Switzerland, I think, is really instructive and really illustrates the point that you're the point you're talking about, Farah Because the the um, so Switzerland, like Portugal, had a sh- and like Vancouver had a horrendous drug problem and in the, the 90s and, and the president of um, Switzerland at the time an incredible woman who also I got to know called Ruth, Ruth Dreyfus first female president of Switzerland just an absolutely remarkable person in every way Ruth explained to people when you hear the word legalization what you picture is like anarchy and chaos what we have now is anarchy and chaos we have unknown criminals, so unknown chemicals to unknown drug users, all in the dark, all filled with violence and disease and chaos. Legalization is the way we restore order to this chaos. So, when she proposed legalizing heroin, obviously she doesn't mean that you can, no one wants you to be able to go in, be like a heroin aisle in CBS. No one's proposing that. The way it, where there was a, and there was actually an experiment with this in Vancouver called the Naomi Project, I'm sure you know about, but the, partly inspired by what happened in Switzerland. That what happens is, if you've got a heroin addiction, you're assigned by your doctor to a clinic. It, they're Swiss, so you have to go to the clinic at 7 o'clock in the morning, which is barbarism as far as I'm concerned, but anyway. Um, you turn up at 7 o'clock in the morning, you go in, you're given your heroin there in the clinic, you can't take it out with you, you have to use it there, a nurse will watch you. And then you leave and you go to your job or to your therapy because they give you loads of support to turn your life around. And one of the things that was really interesting to me at that project, I thing that really surprised me, is... They will give you whatever dose you want, except a dose that would kill you, and you can stay on that program as long as you want. And yet, almost every there's never any pressure to cut back. And yet, almost everyone on that program does cut back over time and stop. So when I went there, it'd been going for ten years, and there was like a handful of people who were still on it from the start. And I said to a woman called Rita Mangi, who's the psychiatrist in Geneva, runs the RAM clinic at the time. Don't think she does anymore. Why is that? Because we're told, like, the drug takes you over. And she looked at me like I was stupid, and she said, well, because their lives get better. And as their lives get better, they don't want to be anesthetized so much, which is almost seems stupidly obvious once it's been explained to you, and yet that's not at all how we think about these these issues. So I think you're totally right. It's about um, the Swiss approaches, and there are some people who don't want to be given the drugs, they don't force you to take it, obviously, but give you the drug you're addicted to, and while they're doing that, deal with the deep underlying problems that make you want to not be present in your life in the first place. Now, some of those challenges are gonna be really complex. Um, I spent some time with the Portland Hotel Society in in Vancouver. I know about the controversy, controversy they were involved in. I also think they, I also saw a firsthand really extraordinary and heroic work that the PHS did, and does I think still, um, so there will be some people who have such complex trauma that they will never be able to live without anesthetics and those people still deserve love and compassion and support on the model the PHS pioneered and that I've seen kind of imitated in places as far away as Sao Paulo in Brazil um, because of what the PHS did in this pioneering way um, so there be some people who will be so traumatized they'll never live without anesthetics and there's other people if you give them love and support they will but the, the, the core is about acknowledging that it's not about a moral failing It's about deep pain that deserves not less love, but more.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, when I hear you speak, and I think most people, um, I think humans are designed to be compassionate by nature, and it's our instinct to be that way. And I I think that, you know, people who listen and read your book will will see and resonate with what you're saying. Um, And I'm wondering what the obstacles are, the political and economic and social obstacles that might be in the way um, or might be what drug policy is really about?
1: I think there's several answers to that. So one reason I think this debate is so charged, the debate about the war on drugs, is because I think if we're honest, it runs through the hearts of all of us. I believe everything I've just said to you. And yet the people I love who have addiction problems, if I'm honest with you, I'm really angry with them a lot of the time. It's not productive. I try not to act on it. I try to let the compassionate part of me come through. But if I'm honest, you know, I've spent my life researching this for five years and I still can't hold on to that all the time. So I think there's a degree to which it's just kind of natural to be conflicted about it. And it's not, we all have a bit of us that looks at people with addiction problems and thinks, ah, I wish someone would just stop you. I understand that impulse. That's not a, that's not, I don't think it's a productive impulse. I think the evidence is really clear that it doesn't achieve its goal. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. But I don't think it's an inhuman or unnatural impulse to feel that way. I think there's so there's that. There's also, um, you know, very strong vested interests in the existing system. Um, you know, there's a kind of a prison military industrial complex in Canada and Britain and the U.S., there's a lot of people who profit from the status quo. Um, I sometimes think that's a bit overstated. It's very real. But I think it's... the main reason why it continues is because people like me haven't done a good enough job of explaining the alternatives to people, right? Mm-hmm. So most people, when you talk to them, will say, what we're doing has failed, right? That There's a really broad consensus that what we're doing has failed what people don't know is that there are better alternatives out there and and this is an interesting and unusual debate in a way because trying to give a good example when i argue with someone who does so i'm in favor of equality for gay people when i argue with someone who's against that who's against gay marriage for example i'm going to do my best to persuade them but ultimately we just don't agree right we we just want different things with this is an unusual debate because when i speak to people who are in favor of um, the war on drugs for prohibition. Generally, I thought, why are you in favour of prohibition? Generally, what they'll say is, I don't want people to become addicted and I don't want children to use drugs. To which my response is, you're totally right. I completely agree with you. Um, we have the same goal. Um, it's just what we don't agree about is how to get there. So, for example, you know, um, when it comes to children, um, if you want your children to be protected from drugs, as I very much do, We've got to have an absolute priority of getting them out of the hands of armed criminal gangsters who don't care how old they are and into the hands of licensed legal businesses who have a lot to lose if they sell to children. Um, For example, I actually think there's weirdly an unusually high degree of consensus about what we want drug policy to achieve. It's just we haven't done a very good job of explaining what, what the actual alternatives are, and what happens when you try them? Do, do you see what I mean? I didn't say mm-hmm. that very well.
0: No, I think it's. I think you're right that there is a. It's a strange debate in that there is a consensus about not wanting addiction and not wanting um, harm, but there's mm-hmm. different strategies that people think will be effective in that. And when I, you know, when I hear you speak, and I think of the book and and the work that you're doing. I'm wondering, what's your wildest dream about what impact you personally can have and this work that you have, um, will have on I the don't,
1: world?
0: I don't really think
1: political change happens through kind of individuals in that way. I think it happens through lots and lots and lots of people. Uh, so even, you know, um, I don't, I, so I don't think, I don't really think of it in terms of what me, what I personally can do, because I just don't think that's how change happens. Even like the individuals I most admire, Noam Chomsky, Martin Luther King, you know, you look at it actually as Noam and, uh, obviously I didn't know Martin Luther King, but, the, but as King wrote, and as Chomsky says, uh, you know, they could only do anything because there were huge numbers of other people and movements you know, and I'm not, you know, so, so, um, so even someone like them, and I'm never going to be like a you know, hundredth as <laughs> effective at doing anything as Tom Skew or Martin Luther King, obviously, but the, the, even people like them, it only happens because there's lots of us. And I actually think that's quite freeing when you realize, actually, as individuals, you know, uh, I mean, I'm, I've been very lucky that I've been part of a, a, a moment. So if I had written this book 10 years before, um, it would not have been read in the way it has been and it would not have circulated as widely as it has because there's already been a humanizing change in the culture you know I, I see this through the prism of being gay right and i have lived through i'm 38 years old and i have lived through the most incredible transformation and i'm the beneficiary of just the most unbelievably inspiring and heroic Uh, transformation of lots of brave gay people and lots of brave heterosexual people who sided with them, opened their hearts to them. And I don't think you could say with the gay movement, like, who did that? You couldn't pick out a few individuals. It would be wrong. I mean, there are individuals who made particularly brave contributions like Harvey Milk or my friend Andrew Sullivan, who wrote the first book in favor of arguing for gay marriage, for example. There are individuals who made, and there are heterosexual people who made really big contributions as well. But I don't think they wouldn't say and I wouldn't say that it was because of them as individuals. It was because of what's that? I can't remember. The Howard Zinn has this the American historian, late American historian, has this beautiful line about um, I'm gonna completely butcher it. It's something like political changes, you know, enormous numbers of people making small steps in the right direction. He says it's so much better than that. I apologize to all <laughs> listeners. But you know, the the so I think that that's how uh, Given that's how I think change happens, and I think there's really strong evidence that's how any civilising change happens, it's useful. It kind of checks your ego. You're not, you know, you can be a, you know, a nice little pebble on the beach, um, but you're you're never going to be the beach, right? And this is why, uh, you know, my book comes along as well. Uh, one of the things that helps you to see that is that my book comes along at the moment when there's been a whole range of really good books. Um, arguing for different drug policies with Karl Hart, sazana There's just a huge there's been a a really big range of people um and michelle alexander there's been a um i'm gonna feel really bad about the people whose names i have having just said now but the the under caffeinated today but the so there's been a huge range of people whose books have um have been and I, and I think it's not a coincidence that we've all appeared at the same time and there weren't that many good drug reform books prior to prior to this moment Mm because we are products of the moment and the civilizing change that's happened in the culture and because lots of really heroic individuals kept that flame going for a long time when it wasn't you know as i think about people like ethan nadelman who ran the drug policy alliance or there's a wonderful guy in canada who's donald McPherson, you know who's been arguing for drug policy reform in canada for you know decades when it was really hard um so yeah i think does that answer your question
0: absolutely it sounds like there's a whole culture and evolution in terms of human consciousness that's starting to change and the the book is a part of that movement
1: yeah i think a small part but you know the, the transformations of consciousness can happen i think we're living in this this, this very challenging time because we, we you know i've lived and you've lived to see you know I'm, I'm 38 years old i didn't hear the phrase gay marriage until i was 20 and the first time i heard it i thought well that's never going to happen i recently showed my nephew who's uh, 17 now my youngest nephew some of the things that were headlines in the british media um when i was the age he is now not so long ago 20 years ago about gay people and he was in just disbelief he was just like did people call the police you know <laughs> now if the craziest right wing local councillor said the things that used to be on the front page of newspapers that local councillor would have to resign so you can have these extraordinary advantages you can also and i don't need to (laughs) i don't need to tell any of your listeners you can also have extraordinary regressions in history as you know i I don't want to say the name (laughs) of the person that you've all just pictured but you know the um so you can have these the you know these these steps forward or these extraordinary steps back depending on what we do and how we how we respond Mm -hmm. so you know it's 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 kind of daunting to realize that there are no rules of history there's nothing nothing is preordained it really is up to us you know that the beautiful is it Maya Angelou said we are the people we've been waiting for Mm -hmm. you know or uh, I think it was also Maya Angelou who said um uh I kept saying somebody should do something and then I realized I was somebody Mm -hmm. um you know it, it really is all up to us and actually relatively small numbers of people think about bandu and what happened in vancouver that was a quite a small movement of really disempowered people and they led to an extraordinary the first safe injecting rooms in north america since the 1930s and a canadian supreme court ruling saying it can't be shut down when stephen harper challenged it that's kind of incredible right that if they can do it you know starting from where they were yet anyone listening to this is in a position to to make a a really significant change if you Um, combine and join up with the other people who feel the same as you Mm
0: -hmm. well you know I I think that's a great place for us to draw this interview to a close and even though I really want to ask you questions about your book that's coming up next I want to end (laughs) (laughs) I want to end on that note because it's such a powerful and poignant place to end to people who might be listening that we have the power to make change and um, and we can make history in in the way that we make our choices and in the way that we advocate for things and in the way that we see people can i just tell you one one story
1: about that just to end with the, the, my friend i think i mentioned him andrew sullivan My friend andrew sullivan in 1994 he was he'd been diagnosed with hiv he was a gay man his first thought when he was diagnosed with hiv is i deserve this i brought it on myself it was the that thought was the product of all the homophobia he'd been raised with and he, this is a time before protease inhibitors, so people were just die. His best friend just died in front of him. People were just dying all around him. More people had died in the age crisis than had died in the Vietnam War, on the American side in the Vietnam War. Um, and he basically was sure he was about to die, and he went to Provincetown in Cape Cod to write a book, which he was sure would be the last thing he ever wrote. And he decided, well, it's never going to happen for me, but I'm going to write this utopian book in which I make the case for gay marriage, which is no one had ever written a book for, about. And sometimes when I feel down, I think, okay, I try to imagine, okay, going back in time to that summer in Provincetown and saying to Andrew, okay, you're not going to believe me, 25 years from now, you're going to be alive. That's the first thing. It's pretty impressive. You'll be alive and well. Secondly, um, the Supreme Court, in their ruling introducing national gay marriage, it's going to quote the book that you are writing now. You will then get married, and you will then be invited to celebrate in the White House, which will be lit up with the rainbow flag. And by the way, the president who invites you, he's going to be black. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it would be like you saying to me, twenty-five years from now, a transgender president will invite you to smoke crack with her in the in the Oval Office, right? It would just be the most not that I want to smoke crack in the Oval Office, but the, you know, it would be. It would seem absolutely ridiculous, but I saw Andrew the day after he was invited to the White House to do that, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the incredible things can happen. And, and, and at this, in this very dark moment in our history, collectively in the, in the world, when there is so much going wrong, I think it's so important for us to remember the power we have. They want us to feel powerless. Donald Trump wakes up every morning <laughs> hoping that you and me feel powerless. And think there's nothing we can do to stop them. The, the horrendous reactionary forces in your country, and my country, feel the same. And it's not true. The great news is it's not true. We are really powerful. And the 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 you know so much of the despair that's fueling the addiction crisis and the suicide crisis is based on this this this, this misconception that we've been taught by these partly by these powerful powerful people.
0: Well, I really appreciate that story because it really brings it home that yes, we do have power, and um, and change happens when individuals collectively um, make change happen. So, absolutely, it's been such a real pleasure to to speak oh, with you. It's
1: my pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much. You have a very soothing voice as well. So it's fond <laughs> by yours. <laughs> You should go and read me bedtime stories. Um, the, I should also say um, my publishers tell me, I'll say that people who want to, who can listen to interviews with Bud Osborne, the guy I mentioned, and, and lots of other people at uh, the book's website, and, and Bruce Alexander, who did the Rat Park experiment, and loads of other people, people who knew Billy Holiday, at www.chasingthescream.com. And there's a Facebook page, which is facebook.com/chasingthescream with an
0: M. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thanks again. Cheers.
0: been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.